Chapter 7 Faith's Choice By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Hebrews 11, 24-26. I don't need to tell you that the eleventh chapter of the letter to the Hebrews is a great chapter. It must have been most motivating and encouraging to a converted Jew. I suppose no group found so much difficulty in a profession of Christianity as the Hebrews did. The way was narrow to all, but preeminently so to them. The cross was heavy to all, but they had to carry double the weight. And this chapter would refresh them. It would be as wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Proverbs 31, 6. Its words would be pleasant as an honeycomb, sweet to the soul, and health to the bones. Proverbs 16, 24. The three verses I am going to explain are far from being the least interesting in the chapter. Indeed, I think few, if any, have so strong a claim on our attention. And I'll tell you why I say so. The work of faith spoken of here applies even more to our situation. The men of God named in the former part of the chapter are all examples to us, beyond question, but we cannot literally do what most of them did, however much we may share their spirit. We are not called to offer a literal sacrifice like Abel, build a literal ark like Noah, literally leave our country and live in tents, or offer up our Isaac like Abraham. But the faith of Moses comes nearer to us. It seems to operate in a way more familiar to our own experience. It made him conduct himself much as we must in the present day, each in our own walk of life. For this reason, I think these three verses deserve more than ordinary consideration. Now I have nothing but the simplest things to say about them. I will only try to impress on you the greatness of the things that Moses did and the principle on which he did them. Then perhaps you will be better prepared for the practical instruction that the verses hold out to everyone who will receive it. May the Holy Spirit bless the subject to us all. May He give us the same spirit of faith so that we may walk in the steps of Moses, do as he did, and share his reward. Moses's Sacrifices The first thing I want us to see is that Moses gave up three things for the sake of his soul. He felt that his soul would not be saved if he kept them, so he gave them up. In so doing, I say that he made three of the greatest sacrifices that a heart can make. He gave up rank and greatness. Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Hebrews 11.24. You all know his story. The daughter of Pharaoh had preserved his life when he was an infant. She adopted him and educated him as her own son. If writers of history may be trusted, she was Pharaoh's only child. Men go so far as to say that, in the common order of things, Moses would one day have been king of Egypt. That may or may not have been, we cannot tell. It's enough for us to know that from his connection with Pharaoh's daughter, Moses might have been, if he had pleased, a very great man. If he had been content with the position in which he found himself at the Egyptian court, 
he might easily have been among the greatest, if not the greatest, in all the land of Egypt. Think for a moment how great this temptation was. Here was a man who had the same passions we have. He might have had as much greatness as earth can give. Position, power, place, honor, titles, dignities, all were ahead of him and within his grasp. Many men struggle continually for these things. These are the prizes that the world around us races to obtain, to be somebody, to be looked up to, to raise themselves in the scale of society, to add a title to their names. These are the things for which many sacrifice time, thought, health, and life itself. But Moses would not take them even as a gift. He turned his back on them. He refused them. He gave them up. More than this, he refused pleasure. Pleasure of every kind, no doubt, was at his feet if he had wanted it. Sensual pleasure, intellectual pleasure, social pleasure, whatever could strike his fancy. Egypt was a land of artists, a residence of educated men, a resort of everyone who had skill or science of any kind. Someone in the place of Moses could have easily commanded anything that could feed the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. Think how great this temptation was, also. Remember, this is the one thing for which millions live. They differ perhaps in their views of what makes up a real pleasure, but all agree in seeking it first and foremost. Pleasure and enjoyment in the holidays are the grand objects to which a schoolboy looks forward. Pleasure and satisfaction in making themselves independent are the marks on which many young people in business fix their eye. Pleasure and ease in retiring from business with a fortune are the aims that the merchant sets before him. Pleasure and bodily comfort in his own house are the wishes of the poor man. Pleasure and fresh excitement in politics, in traveling, in amusements, in friends, in books, these are the goals toward which the rich person is straining. Pleasure is the shadow that all are hunting, high and low, rich and poor, old and young, one with another. Each perhaps pretends to despise his neighbor for seeking it. Each in his own way seeks it for himself, each secretly wonders why he doesn't find it, and each is firmly persuaded that somewhere or other it is to be found. This was the cup that Moses had before his lips. He might have drunk as deeply as he liked of earthly pleasure, but he wouldn't take it. He turned his back on it. He refused it. He gave it up. Moses also refused riches. The treasures in Egypt is an expression that seems to tell of the wealth he might have enjoyed had he been content to remain with Pharaoh's daughter. We may suppose these treasures would have been a great fortune. Enough still remains in Egypt to give us a faint idea of the money at its king's disposal. The pyramids, obelisks, and statues are still standing there as witnesses. The ruins at Karnak, Luxor, Dendera, and many other places are still the most magnificent buildings in the world. They testify to this day that the man who gave up Egyptian wealth gave up something that even our modern minds would find it hard to calculate. Think again what a great temptation this was. Consider the power of money, the immense influence that the love of money has on people's minds. Look around you. 
See how we covet it, and what amazing pains and trouble we'll go through to get it. If you tell people of an island thousands of miles away where something may be found that may be profitable if imported, then at once a fleet of ships will be sent to get it. If you show them a way to make one percent more of their money, they will count you among the wisest of men. They will almost fall down and worship you. To possess money seems to hide defects, cover over faults, and clothe the person with virtues. People can tolerate a lot if you are rich. But here is a man who might have been rich but chose not to be. He would not take Egyptian treasures. He turned his back on them. He refused them. He gave them up. These were the things that Moses refused power, pleasure, and riches, all three at once. Add to all this that he did it deliberately. He didn't refuse these things in a hasty fit of youthful excitement. He was forty years old. He was in the prime of life. He knew what he was doing. He weighed both sides of the question. Neither did he refuse them because he was obliged to. He was not like the dying man who tells us that he craves nothing more in this world. He only says that because he's leaving the world and cannot keep it. He was not like the pauper who makes poverty a virtue and says he doesn't want riches. He says that because he can't get them. He wasn't like the old man who boasts that he has laid aside worldly pleasures. Why does he say that? Because he's worn out and cannot enjoy them. No, Moses refused what he might have kept and gave up what he might have enjoyed. Power, pleasure, and riches did not leave him. He left them. I believe his was one of the greatest sacrifices mortal man ever made. Others have refused much, but none so much as Moses. Others have done well in the way of self-sacrifice and self-denial, but he excels them all. Moses's Choices The second thing I'll speak about is what Moses chose. I think his choice is as wonderful as his refusal. He chose three things for his soul's sake. The road to salvation led through them, and he followed it. In so doing, he chose three of the last things that man is ever inclined to choose. He chose suffering and affliction. He left the ease and comfort of Pharaoh's court and openly joined the children of Israel. They were an enslaved and persecuted people, an object of distrust, suspicion, and hatred and the man who befriended them was sure to taste of the bitter cup they were daily drinking. To the human eye there was no chance of their deliverance from bondage without a long and uncertain struggle. No matter how much they wanted it, a settled home and country must have seemed to them like something they would never have. In fact, if ever a man seemed to be willingly choosing pain, trials, poverty, lack, distress, anxiety, and perhaps even death, Moses was that man. But think how wonderful this choice was. We naturally shrink from pain. It is in us all to do so. We draw back by a kind of instinct from suffering and avoid it if we can. If two courses of action are given to us, both of which seem right, we always take that which is the least disagreeable to flesh and blood. We spend our days in fear and anxiety when we think affliction is coming and we use every means to escape it. If it does come, 
we often fret and murmur under the burden of it, and if we are able to bear it patiently, we count it a great accomplishment indeed. But look here in the text. Moses is a man just like us. He has the same desires and passions, but he actually chose affliction. Moses saw the cup of suffering that was coming if he left Pharaoh's court, and he chose it, preferred it, and embraced it. But he did more than this. He chose the company of a despised people. He left the society of the great and wise among whom he had been raised, and joined himself to the children of Israel. He who had lived from infancy in the midst of power, riches, and luxury left his high social standing and cast his lot with poor men, with slaves, with bondservants, with the oppressed, the destitute, the afflicted, the tormented, and the laborers in the brick kiln. How wonderful was this choice! Generally speaking, we think it's enough to carry our own troubles. We may feel sorry for those who are despised because of their low social standing. We may even try to help them. We may donate money to help them or speak on their behalf to those on whom they depend. But we generally stop there. But Moses is a man who does far more. He doesn't merely feel for despised Israel, but also actually goes down to them, adds himself to their society, and lives with them. You would be surprised if some rich and powerful politician or celebrity were to give up house, fortune, and position in society to go live on a small allowance in an alley in a crowded inner city for the sake of doing good. Yet this would convey just a very faint and feeble notion of the kind of thing that Moses did. He saw a despised people, and he chose their company in preference to that of the noblest in the land. He became one with them, their equal, their associate, and their friend. But he did even more. He chose reproach and scorn. Who could imagine the flood of mockery and ridicule that Moses would have to endure in turning away from Pharaoh's court to join Israel? Men would tell him he was mad, foolish, weak, silly, and out of his mind. He would lose his influence. He would forfeit the favor and good opinion of all among whom he had lived. Think again about what a choice this was. There are few things more powerful than ridicule and scorn. They can do far more than open hate and persecution can do. Many who would march up to the mouth of a cannon, lead a hopeless mission, or storm a breach have found it impossible to face the mockery of a few companions and have flinched from the path of duty to avoid it. To be laughed at, to be made a joke of, to be jested and sneered at, to be considered weak and silly, to be thought a fool, there is nothing grand in all this, and many cannot make up their minds to face it. Yet there is a man who made up his mind to endure it, and did not shrink from the trial. Moses saw reproach and scorn before him, and he chose them and accepted them for his destiny. These were the things that Moses chose, affliction, the company of a despised people, and scorn. Keep in mind that Moses was no weak, ignorant, illiterate person who didn't know what he was doing. You are specifically told that he was a learned man, and that he was mighty in words and in deeds. Yet he chose as he did. Acts 7, 
22. Take note, too, of the circumstances of his choice. He wasn't forced to choose as he did. No one compelled him to take these actions. The things he embraced did not force themselves on him against his will. He went after them. They did not come after him. All that he did, he did of his own free choice, voluntarily and of his own accord. Is it not true that his choice was as wonderful as his refusal? Since the world began, no one ever made the kind of choice that Moses did in our text. What was the principle that moved Moses and made him do as he did? How can this conduct of his be accounted for? What possible reason can be given for it? To refuse that which is generally called a good thing, and to choose that which is commonly thought of as an evil thing, this is not the way of flesh and blood, and this is not the manner of man. This requires some explanation. Faith. You can hear the explanation in the text. I don't know if its greatness or its simplicity is more to be admired. It all lies in one little word. That word is faith. Moses had faith. Faith was the foundation of his wonderful conduct. Faith made him do as he did, choose what he chose, and refuse what he refused. He did it all because he believed. God set in front of him his own will and purpose. God revealed to him that a Savior was to be born of the people of Israel, and that mighty promises yet to be fulfilled were bound up in these children of Abraham. He revealed that the time for fulfilling a portion of these promises was near, and Moses put credit in this and believed. Every step in his wonderful career, every action in his life's journey after leaving Pharaoh's court, his choice of apparent evil and his refusal of apparent good, all must be traced to this. All will be found to rest on this foundation. God had spoken to him, and he had faith in God's word. He believed that God would keep his promises. He believed that what he had said he would surely do, and that what he had promised he would surely perform. He believed that with God nothing was impossible. Reason and sense might say that the deliverance of Israel was out of the question. The obstacles were too many, and the difficulties too great. But faith told Moses that God was all-sufficient. God had undertaken the work, and it would be done. He believed that God was all-wise. Reason and sense might tell him that his line of action was absurd. He was throwing away useful influence and destroying all chance of helping his people by breaking with Pharaoh's daughter. But faith told Moses that if God said, Go this way, it must be the best. He believed that God was all-merciful. Reason and sense might hint that a more pleasant manner of deliverance might be found, that some compromise might be reached, and many hardships avoided. But faith told Moses that God was love and he would not give his people one drop of bitterness beyond what was absolutely needed. Faith was a telescope to Moses. It made him see the good land far off. He could see rest, peace, and victory, when weak-sighted reason could only see trial and barrenness, storm and tempest, weariness and pain. Faith was an interpreter to Moses. 
It helped him see a comforting meaning in the dark commands of God's handwriting, while ignorant sense could see nothing in it but mystery and foolishness. Faith told Moses that all this power and greatness was of the earth. Faith told him it was worldly, that it was a poor, vain, empty thing, that it was frail, fleeting, and passing away, and that there was no true greatness like that of serving God. God was the king, and Moses was the true nobleman who belonged to the family of God. It was better to be last in heaven than first in hell. Faith told Moses that worldly pleasures were pleasures of sin. They were mixed with sin, they led to sin, they were ruinous to the soul, and they were displeasing to God. It would be small comfort to have pleasure while God was against him. It is better to suffer and obey God than to be at ease and sin. Faith told Moses that these pleasures, after all, were only for a season. They couldn't last, they were all short lived. They would weary him soon, and he must leave them all in a few years. Faith told him that there was a reward in heaven for the believer far richer than the treasures in Egypt, durable riches, stored where rust could not corrupt, nor thieves break through and steal. Matthew 6, 19-20. The crown there would be incorruptible. 1 Corinthians 9:25. The weight of glory would be extreme and eternal. 2 Corinthians 4.17. And if his eyes were dazzled with Egyptian gold, faith directed his eyes to the glories of heaven. Faith told Moses that affliction and suffering were not real evils. They were the school of God in which he trains the children of grace for glory. They are the medicines we need to purify our corrupt wills, the furnace to burn away our dross, and the knife to cut loose the ties that bind us to the world. Faith told Moses that this despised people were the people of God. To them belonged the adoption, the covenant, the promises, and the glory, and of them the seed of the woman was one day to be born who would bruise the serpent's head. Faith told Moses that these people had the special blessing of God on them, that they were lovely and beautiful in his eyes, and that it was better to be a doorkeeper among the people of God than to reign in the palaces of wickedness. Faith told Moses that all the reproach and scorn poured out on him was the reproach of Christ, that it was honorable to be mocked and despised for Christ's sake, that whoever persecuted Christ's people was persecuting Christ himself, and that the day must come when his enemies would bow before him and lick the dust. All this and much more Moses saw by faith. These were the things he believed, and he did what he did because he believed. He was convinced of their truth and embraced them. He counted them as certainties, and he regarded them as truth to be counted on. He considered them as sure as if he had seen them with his eyes, and he acted on them as realities. This is what made him the man that he was. Do not be astonished that he refused greatness, riches, and pleasure. He looked far forward. He saw with the eye of faith kingdoms crumbling into dust, riches taking wings and flying away, pleasures leading to death and judgment, and only Christ and his little flock enduring forever. Don't be surprised that he chose affliction, a despised people, and reproach. He saw things below the surface, 
He saw with the eye of faith affliction lasting for just a moment, reproach rolled away and ending in everlasting honor, and the despised people of God reigning as kings with Christ in glory. Was he not right? Does he not speak to us, though dead, this very day? The name of Pharaoh's daughter has disappeared. The city where Pharaoh reigned is not known. The treasures in Egypt are gone. But the name of Moses is known wherever the Bible is read, and is still a standing witness that happy is he who lives by faith. Proverbs 16.20. Let me conclude by giving you some practical lessons we can take from this text. Some may ask what all this has to do with us. We don't live in Egypt. We've seen no miracles. We're not Israelites, and we're tired of the subject. If this is the thought of your heart, by God's help I will show you that this teaching is for everyone. There are four lessons we all need to hear. If you want to be saved, you must make the same choice that Moses made. You must put God before the world. Listen to what I say. Even if you forget everything else, don't overlook this. I don't necessarily say that the statesman must give up his office and the rich man abandon all of his property, but I do say that if a person desires to be saved, whatever his station in life, he must be prepared for tribulation. He must make up his mind to choose that which seems evil and to give up and refuse that which seems good. I'm sure this sounds like strange language to some who read these pages or listen to these words. I know you may have a certain form of religion and find no trouble or tribulation in your way. Today, many have a common, worldly kind of Christianity, and they think that's enough. They have a cheap Christianity that offends nobody and requires no sacrifice. It costs nothing and is worth nothing. I am not speaking of this kind of religion, but if you really are concerned about your soul, if your religion is something more than a mere fashionable cloak, if you are determined to live by the Bible and be a New Testament Christian, then you will soon find that you must carry a cross, you must endure hard things, and you must suffer because of your soul, as Moses did, or you cannot be saved. The world in this century is what it always was. The hearts of people are still the same. The cross still offends. Galatians 5 11. God's true people are still a despised little flock. True evangelical religion still brings with it reproach and scorn. Many will still consider a real servant of God to be a weak fanatic and a fool. Do you wish? your soul to be saved? Then remember, you must choose whom you will serve. Joshua 24, 15. You cannot serve God and the world. Matthew 6, 24. You cannot be on two sides at once. You cannot be a friend of Christ and a friend of the world at the same time. You must come out from the children of this world and be separate. 2 Corinthians 6, 17. You must put up with a great deal of ridicule, trouble, and opposition, or you will be lost forever. You must be willing to think and do things that the world considers foolish, and to hold opinions that are only held by a few. It will cost you something. The stream is strong, and you have to go against it. 
The way is narrow and steep, and it's no use saying it's not. Count on it, there can be no saving religion without sacrifices and self-denial. Are you doing anything of this kind? I ask this with all tenderness and love. Are you, like Moses, preferring God to the world, or not? I beg you not to take shelter under that dangerous word, we. We ought, we hope, we mean, and the like. I ask you plainly, what are you doing yourself? Are you willing to give up anything that keeps you back from God? Or are you clinging to the Egypt of the world and saying to yourself, I must have it, I must have it, I cannot tear myself away? What sacrifices are you making? Are you making any at all? Is there any cross in your Christianity? Are there any sharp corners in your religion? Anything that ever jolts or collides with the worldly thinking around you? Or is everything smooth and rounded off, comfortably fitted into custom and fashion? Do you know anything of the afflictions of the gospel? Is your faith and practice ever a subject of scorn and reproach? Are you thought a fool by anyone because of your soul? Have you left Pharaoh's daughter and heartily joined the people of God? Are you venturing all on Christ? Search your conscience and see. These are hard and rough sayings. I can't help it. I believe they are founded on Scripture truths. I remember it is written, There went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 25-27 I am afraid many would like glory, but have no wish for grace. They want the wages, but not the work. The harvest, but not the labor. The reaping, but not the sowing. The reward, but not the battle. But it cannot be. As Bunyan says, the bitter must come before the sweet. Footnote This is a line from John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. If there is no cross, there will be no crown. Faith is the only thing that will ever enable you to choose God before the world. Nothing else will do it. Knowledge won't. Feelings won't. A regular use of rituals won't. Good companions won't. All of these may do something, but the fruit they produce has no power to continue, it will not last. A religion springing from such sources will only last as long as there is no tribulation or persecution because of the word. As soon as there is any, it will dry up. It is a clock without weights. Its face may be beautiful, you may turn its hands around, but it won't go. A religion must have a living foundation to stand and there is no other but faith. Do you have this faith? If you have, you will find it possible to refuse what seems to be good and choose what seems to be evil. You will think nothing of today's losses in the hope of tomorrow's gains. You will follow Christ in the dark and stand by Him to the very end. If you don't have faith, I warn you, you will never fight the good fight.
1 Timothy 6.12, or Run that ye may obtain, 1 Corinthians 9.24. You will soon be offended and turn back to the world. There must be a real belief that God's promises are sure and to be depended on, a real belief that what God says in the Bible is all true, and that every doctrine contrary to this is false, no matter who says it. There must be a real belief that all God's words are to be accepted as authoritative, no matter how hard and disagreeable they seem to us, and that His way is right and all others are wrong. You must have this, or you will never come out from the world, take up the cross, follow Christ, and be saved. You must learn to believe promises better than possessions, things unseen better than things seen, things in heaven, out of sight, better than things on earth before your eyes, and the praise of the invisible God better than the praise of visible man. Then, and only then, will you make a choice like Moses and rather have God than the world. This was the faith by which the old saints obtained a good report. Hebrews 11, 2. This was the weapon by which they overcame the world. 1 John 5, 4. This made them what they were. This was the faith that made Noah go on building his ark while the world looked on and mocked. It made Abraham give the choice of the land to Lot and continue to live quietly in tents. And it made Ruth cleave to Naomi and turn away from her country and her gods. It caused Daniel to continue in prayer, though he knew the lion's den was prepared, and it caused the three young men to refuse to worship idols, even though the fiery furnace was before their eyes. All these acted as they did because they believed. The Apostle Peter spoke well when he spoke of faith as precious. 2 Peter 1 1. The true reason why so many people are worldly and ungodly is that they have no faith. You must be aware that multitudes of professing Christians would never for a moment think of doing as Moses did. It is useless to speak consolingly and shut our eyes to that fact. You must be blind if you don't see thousands around you daily preferring the world to God, placing the things of time before the things of eternity, and the things of the body before the things of the soul. You may not like to hear it, but it's true. Why do they do so? They will all give us reasons and excuses. Some will talk of the snares of the world, some of the lack of time, some of the peculiar difficulties of their position, some of the cares and anxieties of life, some of the strength of temptations, some of the power of passions, and some of the effects of bad companions. But in the end, there is a far shorter way to account for the state of their souls. They do not believe. One simple sentence, like Aaron's rod, will swallow up all their excuses. They have no faith. They don't really think that what God says is true. They secretly flatter themselves with the notion that not all of God's word will be fulfilled. Surely there must be some other way to heaven besides that which ministers speak of, and the danger of being lost has certainly been exaggerated. In short, 
They do not put implicit confidence in the words that God has written and spoken, so they don't act on them. They do not thoroughly believe in hell, so they don't flee from it. They do not thoroughly believe in heaven, so they don't seek it. They do not believe in the guilt of sin, so they don't turn from it, nor in the holiness of God, so they don't fear Him. They do not believe they need Christ, so they don't trust in Him or love Him. They do not feel confidence in God, so they risk nothing for Him. Like the boy passion in the pilgrim's progress, they must have their good things now. They don't trust God, so they can't wait. What about you? Do you believe all the Bible? Ask yourself that question. Depend on it. It's a much greater thing to believe all the Bible than many suppose. Happy is the person who can say, I am a believer. We sometimes talk of infidels as if they were the rarest people in the world. I grant you that open, professed unbelief is fortunately not as common now as before, but there is a vast amount of practical infidelity around us that is as dangerous in the end as the principles of Voltaire and Paine. Footnote Both Voltaire, 1694-1778, and Thomas Paine, 1737-1809, were authors and philosophers who placed reason above God and religion. Sunday after Sunday, many repeat their creed and make a point of declaring their belief in all that the apostolic and Nicene confessions contain, yet these same people will live all week as if Christ had never died, and as if there were no judgment, no resurrection of the dead, and no life everlasting at all. Many will claim to know it all when spoken to about eternal things and the value of their souls, Yet their lives show plainly that they don't know anything as they ought to know, and the saddest part of their condition is that they think they do. Listener, I warn you that in God's sight, knowledge not acted on is not knowledge at all. A faith that does not influence a man's practice is not worthy of the name. There are only two classes in the church those who believe and those who do not. The difference between the true Christian and the mere outward professing Christian lies in just one word. The true Christian is like Moses, he has faith. The one who only professes has none. The true Christian believes, therefore he lives as he does. The one who merely professes to be a Christian does not believe and so is what he is. Oh, where is your faith? Do not be faithless. Believe. The true secret of doing great things for God is to have great faith. I suspect that we are all apt to err a little on this point. We think too much and talk too much about graces, gifts, and accomplishments, and don't sufficiently remember that faith is the root and mother of them all. In walking with God, a person will go just as far as he believes and no further. His life will always be proportional to his faith. His peace, his patience, his courage, his zeal, his works, all will be according to his faith. Perhaps you read the lives of distinguished Christians, men such as Romaine, Newton, Martin, Scott, Simeon, and McChaney, and you are inclined to say, 
What wonderful gifts and grace these men had! I answer that you should instead give honor to the grace that God puts forward in the eleventh chapter of Hebrews. You should give honor to their faith. Without a doubt, faith was the driving force in the character of each and every one of them. I can hear someone saying, They were so prayerful. That's what made them what they were. But why did they pray so much? Simply because they had much faith. What is prayer but faith speaking to God? Perhaps another will say, They were so diligent and hard working. That accounts for their success. But why were they so diligent? Simply because they had faith. What is Christian diligence but faith at work? Another will tell me, They were bold, and that's what made them so useful. Why were they so bold? Simply because they had great faith. What is Christian boldness but faith, honestly, doing its duty? Another will cry, It was their holiness and spirituality that gave them their weight. Again, what made them holy? Nothing but a living, realizing spirit of faith. What is holiness but faith visible and faith incarnate? Now, do you want to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you want to produce much fruit? Do you want to be very useful? Do you desire to be bright and shine as a light in your day? Like Moses, do you want to make it as plain as day that you have chosen God before the world? I am sure that every believer will reply, Yes, these are the things we long for and desire. Then take the advice I give you today. Go and cry to the Lord Jesus Christ, as the disciples did, Increase our faith. Luke 17, 5. Faith is the root of a real Christian's character. If your root is right, your fruit will soon abound. Your spiritual prosperity will always be according to your faith. He that believes will not only be saved, Mark 16, 16, but will also never thirst, John 4, 14, will overcome, 1 John 5, 4, will be established, Colossians 2, 7, will walk firmly on the waters of this world, Matthew 14, and will do great works. John fourteen twelve.